Thank you, Linda. Let's turn now to our reading, which this morning is taken from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, entitled Peace and Hope, Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're going to stand and sing together before Richard brings the word to us. Some words that I'm going to use this morning. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time when we were, all, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his faith? Not only this, we also boast through God, but sorry, boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been received, have received reconciliation. It's um, one of those books, isn't it? I don't know about you, but um, last year, uh, it seemed the right thing to do. I think the lockdowns and everything going on, there seemed to be a spate of people doing the Bible in a year challenge. So um, I jumped on the bandwagon, and I did it as well. And it's amazing, actually, when you read so much of the Bible, the whole Bible, in such a short space of time, you really start to see how different books fit together. You start to see the different styles of different books, the different authors, the different uh, types of, of liter literature, I suppose. But Romans is a very, very formal book. I don't know if you ever noticed that. 
It's, uh, it's written, obviously, by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Um, and it was kind of, Roman church at the time wasn't a place where Paul knew many people. So he uses a different kind of language to his other books, where he's talking to people maybe he knows or friends or, or people he's met before. And because it's quite a formal book, the language I find, because it's formally written, formally structured and crafted, um, it's, it's dripping with meaning. And I, I made a, a glib point as I started about the 27 words, but actually each of those words you can pull apart and sort of have a look in so many different ways that it's laden with dramatic and amazing truths that we can unpack in all sorts of different ways. Now last week, uh, Richard brought us the first verse. Since, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of those verses, isn't it? It's, it's a famous verse, and it means a lot to us, I'm sure. It's, it's, it's an incredible verse that gets quoted all the time. But just imagine that. Peace with God. Due to Jesus. Peace with God. Now, other words start to jump out at you as well. I mean, those are the, the kind of headlines, I suppose, from that. But we have... I don't know if that's ever struck you as a key phrase, but we have peace with God. Not hope for, not maybe one day have, not you know, possibly in the future. We have now peace with God. And this second verse goes on to explain that even more. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now again, access, I'm going to pull out some odd words in this now, but Access is, is a huge word. I don't know about you, but um, I start to see the word access on a daily basis when I try and log into my work computer and get the password wrong. Access denied pops up. Or, and we talk about access all the time, possibly. But actually, the verb here, or the, the term here, access, um, here we go with the Greek. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation on this, I'm sure now. Prosogorgon. That was a very Welsh accent, wasn't it, for a very Greek word? Prosogorgon. But... <laughs> Prosagogan, literally, not just access. Access is one of those things. I, I find myself saying to children in school, oh, sir, can I put my bag in your room? Yeah, yeah, sure, it's open. Go on, off you go. That's access, isn't it? But this is actually more formal than that. This is literally to be ushered into the presence of God. To be ushered, I don't know if you were greeted this morning on the door, hopefully, um, but you were greeted and you were welcomed, but nobody was ushered. I'm not knocking the team. I can't knock the team. My mother was on the team welcoming this morning. You did an awesome job. Thank you, mother. Um, <laughs> But to be ushered in, it's more of a formal thing. It's like a wedding, sort of taken to your seat and shown where to sit and brought into the presence of, of the people in that room. I think it's more of a formal thing you might see at Buckingham Palace if you go and see the Queen. You know, you're not just told by the guard on the gate, yeah, it's open, mate, in you go. It's literally you're ushered in to the very last moment. And it's actually made of two words. And I'm not going to do Greek of these either because I, I can't speak a word, well, I, I barely speak English. But with Greek, it consists apparently of two words, to bring and facing. So you're not just let in, you are brought in, so you're facing the person whose presence you have been ushered into. And this verse tells us that we've been ushered into a relationship with God. And again, let that settle in for a moment. Be it, to be ushered anywhere is lovely. If you're going to a restaurant or you know, somewhere posh and you get ushered to your table, it's, it's a very special feeling. But to be ushered into a relationship with God where you're acceptable to Him, you have assurance that he is favorably disposed towards you. Now, in this case, the believer is brought into the presence of God. What a privilege. What a privilege to just be allowed into the presence of God. But two other passages uh, use this word. In Ephesians, 
uh, chapter 2 we hear, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. We both have access. Same word being used. Ephesians chapter 3, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. This access, this being ushered in, we haven't earned this at all. This is a gift that's been given to us. We have, by our faith in Jesus and what he's done, we have been ushered into the presence of God. So access is granted by having this key. But I don't want this access to be taken for granted. And we know the key is the faith in Jesus, right? I hope you're all here this morning, you know that. But do you know what? It wasn't always so clear. In the Reformation, Martin Luther, some 500 years ago, came up with, or he was part of the group that came up with the five principles that should underpin faith and underpin church and underpin belief in a God. Have you heard of the solas? I love the solas. It's just, honestly, I'm going to butcher another language now. I'm awfully sorry if I'm offending you with my language skills this morning. But the solas, um, sola gratia. Any ideas? Richard, I'm not looking to you. You know these. <laughs> sola gratia. Sola fide. Solus Christus. Sola scriptura. Soli Deo gloria. I th- exactly. Absolutely. Thank you. I think with those, it's, it sums it up in such a nutshell. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Alone, nothing else. You can't do anything else. In fact, grace is a gift. We can't do anything to earn it. It's been given to us. And through that gift we were given, we were ushered into the presence of God. Sola fide, through faith alone. Again, we've got that grace, but it's through faith in Jesus and the work that he's done for us that we are given this access and granted access ushered into the presence of God. Solus Christus, a less mysterious one, in Christ alone. I think we sang it last week, didn't we? In Christ alone. This is the only reason that we have this access is because of Jesus and what he has done. Sola Scriptura, in Scripture alone. It's the only reason we know about this. The Scripture is so important and the unpacking of the Scripture shows us how this access can be granted. And soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Not for your glory, but so we can glorify God. Language, I've talked about a lot about language, and we'll talk about it a bit more in a moment, but language is just a fascinating thing. I don't know about you, but I, I love language, and uh, I certainly wouldn't have said that when I was in school. But I think the more I find out about language, and actually unpacking language for children in school, perhaps. But have you got a favorite word? <laughs> I was talking to somebody about this years ago, um, in a different church, actually, and they said, oh, do you know what my favorite word is? Oh, yeah, well, go on then. Elbow. I was thinking, that's not as profound a truth as I thought you were going to go for there. Elbow. He said, why, why elbow? It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Okay. It kind of does, I suppose. Elbow. But I don't know about you. Um, grace has got to be up there, isn't it? Once you understand what grace means and what it is to us and actually what that means for us and our relationship to God. And I've seen it sort of put in different ways, but I quite like the, the way that uh, it's explained as an acronym. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. And alongside it, we've got faith because of that grace. Forsaking all, I trust him, perhaps. But this verse one, it's a very present possession. Isn't it? We got this, we have a peace with God. We were created, though, originally to have a peaceful relationship with God. Let's go right back to the beginning here. At the very beginning, we were created by God for a relationship with God. And it was a perfect relationship. We, they, we're told in, in Genesis that Adam, and he, Adam went walking with God in the garden, talking with God in the garden. What an amazing picture that you can just go walking in the presence of God. But that was ruined. That was ruined by 
humans, by Adam and Eve. We sinned against God, and we continue to sin against God, so we became enemies of God. And I want that to settle in for a moment as well. We are enemies, natural enemies of God. And because we're sinners, God is a natural enemy of us. And it's a bit of a strange way of looking at it, but we are able to regain a right relationship with God through the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. And it has been moved after I had better it last time. Thank you for letting me know. But why do we need this? Why is it important? Well, God was our enemy. We were enemies of God. Make no mistake, the people walking past this building right now and looking at the window, you can see cars driving past, are enemies of God. And that means that God's wrath was upon us. Not many people talk about the wrath from up the front, I suppose, anymore, do they? God's anger, God's wrath was upon us. We're not just made up, though. It doesn't just make, say, you know, it's this, this, again, this earthly understanding, I suppose, isn't it? God's anger and God's wrath was justifiably on us. It's not like God went, oh, okay, forget about it. It's not one of those things, a glib kind of forgiveness. The cost that God had to pay through his son on the cross, being not just dying on the cross, being killed by God so that we didn't have to die. This is kind of new to us as a, as a world, isn't it? This is, this is only 2,000 years in the making, only 2,000 years. But for thousands of years before that, they didn't have it. They were looking forward to the sacrifice, the Savior coming. And I don't want you to, to sort of um, hear my words and take my word for it. So I've got a few references of where this comes up. In Romans, again, earlier in the book, in chapter 1, Paul talks about the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In Ezekiel, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful, wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Isaiah chapter 26, For behold, the Lord is coming out of this place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and no more cover its slain. Psalm chapter 7, God is a righteous God. Sorry, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Matthew chapter 10, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Nahum chapter 1, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. I don't want you to take this lightly. I don't want to hammer this point relentlessly. But this is the God that Paul's writing about to the church in Rome. This is the God that we're coming to worship this morning. An angry, wrathful God. And I'm not saying that as, a, as a, a, a negative thing. He has every right to be angry with us. A God that could destroy us in a heartbeat, who could wipe us out if he so wished. But, but, thank goodness, thank God that the story doesn't end there. Have you ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Yeah? We've seen the film, perhaps. I think it's explained so, so elegantly there by C.S. Lewis. And there's a conversation between Lucy um, and <laughs> the Beaver family. Um, and it says, Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who, the, who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mr. Beaver. 
If there's anyone who could appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Didn't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's the king we're coming before this morning. Is he safe? Not according to his word. Not according to those seven or eight verses I read to you. But he is good. There's an American uh, theologian called Frederick Buchner who puts it in a a more adult way, shall we say. Those who believe God can never, in a way, be sure of him again. Once we have seen him in a stable, we can never be sure where he will appear or what lengths he will go to, to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of man. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in the least auspicious of earthbound events, the birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time or lowly or earthbound, but the holiness can be present there too. And this means that we are never safe. There is no place that we can hide from God, no place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart. It is just where God seems most helpless that God is most strong. It is just where we least expect him that he comes to us fully. And I'd argue that we need to be careful. That we need to be careful. I think sometimes... Very often, and partly it's because of the world and the way the world treats God and perhaps just God's name. You know, in, in school, again, um, I've noticed since coming back from, from lockdown, going back to school, the language of children, especially teenagers, is, is awful. It's terrible. It's, it's, I think, I don't know what they were exposed to while they were off school, but I think the language that they use is, is terrible. But actually, the most common words that they used to swear, God's name. Too often we have a low view of God. I mean, we sing a song here, don't we? We sing a song. The, in Holiday Club, we used to sing a song that had the line, God's love is fab and he's my mate. And I, I understand the principle. I understand that you know, in, in, with children, we're trying to share deep and theological profound truths and we can't do it at the level we want to, but I think we've got to be careful. Is God our mate? Matt Redman, in his song, one of his songs said, Welcomed into the court of the kings, I've been ushered into your presence. Lord, I stand on your merciful ground, yet with every step tread with reverence, and I'll fall face down as your glory shines around. God was unreachable before Jesus. There was no right relationship that we could have made with God. Think of when the Egyptian, sorry, the Israelites were wandering in the desert. And the, the sign that God was with them was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It wasn't approachable. It wasn't a particularly a cuddly image, was it? This pillar of cloud, thick, impenetrable cloud that you couldn't see through. Think of when the Israelites had the ark with them. They were even forbidden from touching the ark. In chapter, uh, sorry, Samuel 2, or 2 Samuel chapter 6, rather, it was a sees this, this ark being taken past on, on the cart, drawn by the donkeys, I suppose. And actually, the cart sort of hits a rock and starts to tumble, and, and the ark starts to slide off. So Uzzah steps up. He's like, God, got to help out. And he simply reacts, puts his hands up to stop the ark falling off. He wasn't being rebellious. He wasn't defiant, but he was thoughtless. And as he touched the ark, he was killed, struck down. 
This is the kind of God that we have to be careful approaching. And I don't want to label, label the point that it's too negative, but as one of my favorite writers, Tozer, go back to A.W. Tozer again, he says the most dangerous trap is just living and forgetting that God exists. I think that's what Urza did, isn't it, in the desert, when he just reached out. He had to save the ark. It wasn't his to save. He had his orders. Don't touch it. Thoughtlessly, he took things into his own hands, quite literally. If you think about the model of the temple of the church, or the temple um, in, in ancient times, where we had the Holy of Holies at the center, I'm sure we're all familiar with that, where the ark and the mercy seat would have been. But actually moving out away from this, there were different areas, different places that different people could approach. And it was structured that so Gentiles could get into maybe the outermost courts. Just inside the outer courts, the women could gather, the Jewish women could gather. And then just inside that, getting even closer to the Holy of Holies, the Jewish men could gather. And then just inside that, there's an enclosure for just the priests. And then the closest place inside the Holy of Holies, only one person, one priest could go once a year to do the necessary rituals and even that person as they went in would have a robe with bells tied onto the end and a rope tied around the waist so that people could hear that they were still right while they were in there that they hadn't actually accidentally done anything to offend God and they wouldn't need to be pulled out and it's this kind of God this, this image of God that I think we should have back this God that we are ushered into the presence of we are brought before we are facing and in Romans chapter 9, we'll find this out in a couple of weeks, so we won't, I won't dwell too on, on this too much, but it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I heard Brian, sorry to bring you into this, Brian. I heard Brian saying last week that justified is an amazing word, isn't it? And I think, am I right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but just as if I'd. Absolutely. If you're justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. But you know what, when I think of justified, um, again, sort of typing this up, uh, you know on documents, and if you look at your Bibles at the moment, the text is justified, isn't it? There's a little button you can click to justify a text. And before you click it, it's all a bit raggedy, and a bit messy, and a bit all over the place, but just clicking that button brings it into perfect alignment. And I think, you know, by being justified, it brings us into alignment with God and what he wants. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. It all changed at the cross. It all changed at the crucifixion. We're even told that the curtain of the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Access was granted. And so, we boast. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. How can we boast? I'm asking the wrong crowd, aren't I? We're very British. We don't boast, you know, we're British. But how can we boast in hope? If you have a permanent standing before God, direct access into his presence, maybe not boasting, but a lot of versions use the word rejoice. That's surely something to rejoice over, isn't it? But we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hope is a confidence in our future experience of reveling in God's glory our confidence comes by the right of access and standing in God's grace. That is why we can be certain of the outcome. We have a personal triumph in realizing the permanence of our confidence of what Christ has done for us. And that's the second thing I want to bring out in this. This is permanent. Nothing in this chapter where Paul is out laying out what salvation is and how you get it. Nothing in here says, ah, as long as you. 
This is permanent. We cannot lose our salvation. We cannot lose our standing before God. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in times of need. It says in Hebrews. Let us therefore come rejoicing, perhaps, to the throne of grace. We just sang, didn't we? How deep the Father's love for us. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing we have to boast in. His death and his resurrection. Only 27 words. There's an awful lot to them, isn't there? And I wonder this morning as we come to this, it's, it's a free gift. The grace that we are given is free to all who will accept it, all who will receive it. But do you have it? Do you have faith? Do you stand in the grace that God provided for you? Do you boast or rejoice in the glory of God, of his death and his resurrection? We have access as God's anger is satisfied. Peace has been made by Jesus on our behalf. Do you have that this morning? The verse tells us that we stand in the grace where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. In his presence, grace dominates. We stand in the grace. And if this is you, then your salvation is secure. You can't lose it. Just accept it. But I want you to realize that you have been saved by God. By God alone. What have you been saved from? From God. How did we get saved? Because of what Jesus did. So we've been saved by God from God, for God, for his glory. All we've got to do is accept it. Shall we pray?